And now, live from StarWorldWideNetworks.com, welcome to Marketing Money Mindset, bringing you interesting true stories on how clever marketing ideas create money opportunities with a conscious mindset producing impact and success. Together, lover of marketing Elisa Sparks Lane from the Ellen Sparks Agency and certified professional photographer and official photographer of the Phoenix Open, Everardo Kimi, share their experiences on how success is so much more than creating cash flow. True success comes when you nurture your business, body, and brain in order to get the most out of your business and in life. Join the dynamic duo on our journey to success. Ready? Set. Listen. What's up? Well, are you feeling better now? Because now I just heard before the show that you had a little uh, argument with the bubbles. No, no, no argument. Just um, abundance of them. Okay. And I realized mm. pink bubbles are a little bit more powerful than the regular ones. You know, that, so this is the funny thing with like the psalm studies is when people say, um, you know, I, I get more drunk off of this or I get more drunk off of that. They're all made about the same. Well, it didn't help that we ended up at Fat Ox. Have you been there? Yeah. And one of my friends was celebrating, and we told the GM and then the manager, and they both got us uh, some tequila shots that were delicious. Yeah, see, I don't think it was the bubbles now. See, there's always more, more to the bubbles. story. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a fun night. Liquor before beer. Yeah. Never been sicker, mm -hmm. right? Or all in the clear. Which one is it? I, I don't know. Beer before liquor, all um, in the Ed, clear. Ed knows, but he won't tell us. Yeah, he's trying yeah. to remember right now. I don't remember. <laughs> I honestly, I just know that you said something about bubbles. You didn't say anything about tequila before we started the show. So yeah. Now See, we know. The truth comes out after a while. Yeah. And so that's what usually happens questions. when people are like, oh, I get sick yeah. off of, because a lot of times they blame champagne or they blame Prosecco or whatever kind of bubble or whatever. And they say, bubbles always make me more drunk than something else. Well, it's probably because you started with that. You had an empty stomach. And then you tacked on two bottles of rosé or Syrah or something else after that. And that's usually what ends up happening. Well, it's the holidays. Let's just go there. Okay. Well, we'll just celebrate that way and then have some peppermint. And Oh, so Red was saying she took the kids to uh, the princess and they did the holiday extravaganza over there. And oh, they I did the uh, $25 packages of s'mores by the fire. That's another oh, story. How fun. Uh, but they, one of the drinks that she had was really, really good. So hot chocolate, peppermint schnapps. Wow. And something else was in there, too. And, and just made for, maybe it was Bailey's or something on top of that or something like that. But it was just concoction of a hot chocolate, hot toddy, everything mixed together, which was really, really good. So for the, good. for the past couple of nights, we've been trying to duplicate it. We've had our own versions of it. Fireball seems to be uh, kind of a good staple for it. Get some of that warmth in there and that good feeling of there. When you don't have a peppermint schnapps to substitute for. There you go. Yeah. So it works out for that. A lot of celebrating and drinks. Well, and speaking of that, there's, what, this weekend there's going to be a couple more parties before the whole Christmas Eve, Christmas Day thing hits, because that just turns into more days of celebration. So there's a lot of people I know that are having, like, pre-parties starting Wednesday. You're having one Thursday. Yes. Other friends I know are having one Friday, Saturday. So why not? Let's just do seven days of partying. And then you really, there's, like, a couple days break in between that and New Year's. Yeah. Yes. So, really, these next two and a half weeks are kind of tough. So. I love it. So, Ed, do you celebrate this um, fun holiday season? I try to, but right now I'm I'm just working so much that I, yeah, 
I, I'm doing all my shopping on Amazon because I don't have time to go anywhere. And yeah, that's a smart thing though. That's not just a time thing. Like, I just worry about the Porsche pirates. The Porsche. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I mean, that's become like an epidemic at this point. That uh, it, it's they're taking packages left and right. Now I've got a security system and all that kind of stuff on my house, but uh, I've never had the problem. But I, I usually I've ship got, everything so I, like signature required or something like that. Yeah, but during the day I don't have anybody home. Oh, good point. Yeah, so it's like okay, so I got to take the risk, and you know I go home every day, and there's three or four packages there. It's like, oh crap! <laughs> but it's it makes a difference. Like my the driver in my neighborhood is really good, and so he yeah. kind of does a good job of trying to hide things. And I mean, still people just know to drive around yeah. and follow that truck too. But yeah. Um, Yesterday, I was getting a wine delivery, and that one did have to be signed for, mm-hmm. and the driver didn't want to release that one, though. He was trying to keep it for himself. Oh, shame on him. <laughs> oh, I wonder why. Yeah, right? He even said, too, he's like, these are my favorite ones to, to deliver, because at least I know what's inside somewhat, right? The other ones are just boxes. Who knows? It could be diamond rings. It could be shampoo. <laughs> he says, but at least this one, at least I know it's wine, and it's going to make someone happy. So. <laughs> Funny. Well, and speaking of happy... Yes. Who do we have on the show today? Um, some happy people actually making a real big difference in the world. So subject today is sustainable difference that we're making global companies, over 200 global companies who are committed to supporting sustainable. Um, I'm just going to give it to Ken because Ken is actually one of our supporters too. And I mean, he's hiding under the mic, but um, he's actually, I mean, we've had this subject a lot. We've been talking about sustainability since I've known you. I know you're yeah. a big supporter of the Green Chamber and other um, organizations yeah. around the Valley. And um, thank you for being here. And tell us what's going on and who did you bring today? Because this well, is actually yeah, a pretty I, good Actually, my name's team. Ben, Ben, and this is Jerry. Excellent. We, 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 we make ice cream, actually. <laughs> That's yeah. funny. It's not very sustainable. That but makes actually, me happy. It's, it's, that does it's, make us happy. It's a great Christmas Did you topic. bring us samples? No. We, we did, but then there's a big truck down in the park. You know, we couldn't bring it up because the, the, you know, the boxes are so big. Actually, we met in the checkout line in Safeway. Mm-hmm. We did. Yeah. We did. Um, um, yeah, I brought with me um, Phil Alsop, and Phil and Phil and I actually met in a coffee shop, and um, we struck up an interesting conversation. Um, um, and and we've been we've been working on um, a couple of projects for gosh uh, three four years. Mm-hmm. Uh, most recently, um, in a phone call this morning, we are working alongside the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. It's an organization made up of approximately 250 global companies. Um, it's located in Zurich, and I would encourage um, all of the listeners to check out the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. They're doing some amazing things, some cutting-edge stuff. And the project we're involved here, or we're working alongside with them trying to get started, is a project called Amplify Phoenix. Great name, by the way. It is a great mm. name. Um, the, the idea behind the project and the goal behind the project is to find, find ways to make Phoenix the go-to city for Fortune 500 companies and other corporations um, uh, in, in the future. When they think of a city that they would like to locate to, um, Phoenix would be at the top of their list and be at the top of people's list for a place to move to where people would want to bring their family to fulfill their dreams and their heart's desires. Um, and so we're um, in the process of getting, getting that launched. And Phil, go, Phil, Phil, go ahead. Sure. Um, I think one of the 
big uh, challenges faced by this metropolitan <coughs> region as well as many others, and in our particular case, is how do we, over the next 20 or 30 years, accommodate, you know, 40%, 50% population growth without sprawling all the way to Blythe, California, and imposing four and five hour commutes every day for people to get into work. How do we do that um, and also uh, create environments that are far more uh, responsive to the climate change realities that this region and many others are actually facing? Um, one of the uh, threads of uh, inquiry that we're involved in uh, alongside, say, the World Business Council on Sustainable Development is what do we do with uh, human habitat? That's the, the built environments, the infrastructures that we create to shelter and enable a huge array of human endeavors from housing to schools to commerce, industry, you name it. Um, and, and it's important for two reasons. One, um, if you look at how much the United States spent last year on treating chronic diseases, which is around $2.8 trillion, with a T, dollars. Um, a lot of that comes from, obviously, our lifestyle, what we eat, what we drink. But a ton of it comes from the places we inhabit as well. We spend a huge amount of time in and around buildings for a whole range of reasons. Um, and yet, given how important it is to us uh, as a species, uh, we still have an economic situation or an economic kind of set of incentives and structure that tends to treat our built environments as if they're nothing much more than real estate commodities. And how do we, is the big question, how do we create better quality, better durability, and uh, better environments that actually resonate with human emotions to enable people to feel actually part uh, of the places they're inhabiting, as opposed to just temporary occupiers of a piece of real estate, uh, real estate commodity. So that, that it, it's a big issue that we're dealing with. Uh, it, it's going to involve uh, a very large array of uh, different economic verticals from you know, banking, insurance, uh, construction, the design community, uh, local communities, and so on. So um, I'll... What's one of the ways that that can change it? Because the way I first kind of envision that is when another pop-up mall goes into place, right? Mm -hmm. Or we see another development or something, you know, a department complex is crushed and a car dealership is built. Or a car mm -hmm. dealership is crushed and an apartment complex is built. Yeah. So what's the cycle with that? And how, do, how can a building become more of an environment at that point? Um, well, as I say, at the moment, we, we see a series of transactions, just as you've described, because it's a real estate opportunity to go in and do something different. It tends to be, uh, let's make it as expedient and as inexpensive as possible. Let's do it so that uh, we don't have to work that much with the city or the municipality to try to change or modify any of the zoning or planning regulations. We'll just do the minimum to, to, to create the minimum impedance to getting the project done, and uh, taking the return on investments that we're, we've been expecting. The net casualty in all of this tends to be the quality of the built environments that we do have, and as a result of how much we depend on our built environments, we too are a casualty. Mm -hmm. And if we ended up having to account for the amount of economic energy and money that we have to put into treating chronic diseases that can be attributed to the built environments we occupy, we'd probably think about doing those kind of 
functional flips that you described a little differently than what we are now. We're not talking about huge changes. We're talking about just a, a little change here and there to the current economic genetic code uh, to actually make a world of difference. And that's really what we're, we're trying to do. And so one of the most popular ones that people probably see is like a rooftop garden. Yes. Right? And, and that's, but it also seems like there's a famous saying about this. I think it came from Seinfeld is, well, that's the least I could do. Because yeah. if I could do any less, I would. Right, yeah. But that's the least I could do. I could put a rooftop garden up there yeah. and make people think that I'm you know, trying to make this some part of the environment. But does that really help? Do, do those things really kind of have an impact? Or? They can, if they're done right. Um, you know, if, they're, if the structure can stand those things, they tend to be, they can be heavy. They can impose some really you know, pretty significant uh, you know, stresses on the structure and so on. So you, you can do that where you can do it. Um, but I think, you know, creating environments that resonate with more with the human spirit um, is, is more than just putting roof gardens in. Those are good things to have. It's like having, you know, buildings LEED certified. That's great. It'd be wonderful, in fact, if it was a default condition for any building to be LEED certified, in fact. Uh, but to do that, we've got to actually change the prevailing economic conditions that make currently a LEED certification the exception rather than the rule. Um, and uh, I mean, some years ago, I was talking with uh, the uh, Scottsdale Chamber of Commerce, uh, and they were asking me about um, uh, what to do about building heights in Scottsdale. And I, they asked me, I think, what, what do you think about uh, eight stories? And I thought, well, I thought eight stories is pretty innocent to me, but maybe I can sort of explain a little bit more about that uh, by asking how many in this room have been to, say, Paris. And a fair number of people have put their hands up. And I said, what do you think of it? And they started talking extemporaneously about how wonderful it was to be able to literally fall out of bed, go and get a cup of coffee around the corner, not have to drive two miles to a mall and find a parking spot just to get a, a deli sandwich or something. They could do things more locally, and there was a lot more eye candy and visual diversity around them and I said, well, if we were able to build at the same density as Paris, I'm not suggesting we do that, instead of just having 240,000 people in the city of Scottsdale or thereabouts at the time, we could probably hold about 1.2 million without ever encroaching out on the desert. Not that we want to do that. Um, so why is it that we spend so much of our time visiting places um, which do provide this sort of great human connection that we find so rare in so many places here, but we, we don't allow ourselves to build and do better pl places here. Well, especially here in our own backyard, Frank Lloyd Wright. I mean, yeah. he made his career out of, and with his school at Taliesin West, it was making architecture and humans a, a better interaction. You're absolutely right. In fact, I served for uh, four years as the CEO of the Frank Lloyd Wright Foundation and was based at Taliesin West and also had an office up in uh, Spring Green. And you're right. And for all the publicized foibles of Frank Lloyd Wright and so on uh, that, that appear in the press from time to time, he wrote very extensively on these human connections um, and how important it was to, to literally create places that enable people to feel connected to the places we're in. I mean, here in, in Arizona, I think we've got, Ken is about 154,000 young men and women between yeah. 16 and 24 who are totally disconnected from society. Le but, left, left school for one reason or another, broken homes, yeah. tough personal situations, and you know, now they're out, out on the street. Yeah. You know? 
And it's not a green roof that's going to make a difference, right, no. but it is about the quality of the environment that they grew up in. And Ken's and my research shows amply from researchers that have been uh, going on for years that human beings, in fact, any semi-sentient you know, being, animals as well, are fantastically efficient amplifiers of the social, uh, economic, and physical environments that yeah, they're yeah. surrounded by. So you start to shortchange the physical, and it makes it harder to even do better on the social and economic side, too. So yeah, is LEED certification kind of the forefront of it, or is it just the most popular name that people kind of attach to? It's part of a number of different standards that exist worldwide. Um, LEED uh, was a, a follow-on from uh, something called BREAM, the uh, Building Research Establishment Environmental Assessment Method. And you can only say that if you're British. I love how you just from. rattle that off. That. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, I'm not I, allowed to say it. I, I practiced that before I came on. No. Um, but uh, it's one of many standards, and the attempt is to, to try to make our built environments more efficient because if you look at just energy, which is actually one of the easiest things to measure, um, built environments account for more than 50% of our total energy consumption. Um, and then when you look at how buildings themselves are located in space geographically, you add in all the transportation costs for people to get to and from and around places, it's up at 70%. It's the biggest single um, driver for uh, energy use that we, we have. It, it dwarfs any other. So, um, yeah, the lead is, um, is great. They're doing more and more things to... The US GBC is doing more to... Um, connect the, should we say, the efficiency of buildings with, with, the, with the sort of ambiance of environments, which is what Bream originally did. Um, but there are other standards around as well. And the, attempt, the, the thing about these standards is to try to encourage those involved in uh, designing buildings to, uh, or built environments, parks or whatever, to be more cognizant of the opportunities to make them better and more efficient. Um, what Ken and I are interested in, and, and the big gap that we see uh, is why we're in, in the lengthy discussions that we are right now with um, the World Business Council on Sustainable Development, is um, what are the driving forces that cause what we see today to be the norm rather than a lead platinum to be mm -hmm. the norm? Uh, and I know that the, the, the banking community and the insurance community have a huge uh, interest in this. I mean, on one end, we've got the banking industry and finance you know, providing a lot of the capital funds for uh, real estate development. Uh, but as we've seen in Houston, we've seen in Southern California today and also up in Santa Rosa, we've now got at the back end of it the property casualty insurers having to come in as a financial vacuum cleaner to clean that up. And that's getting more and more difficult for them. I think the first six months of uh, 2017, Swiss Re, which provides the top-up funding for the insurers, that was, they spent something like $43 billion on claims, many of which came from climate-related and human-induced uh, problems that exist. So if, if we can look at the uh, larger structure of the economy and tweak some parts of it that provide advantage to all players in it, we might well be able to achieve more uh, lead, shall we say, uh, certification as a standard as opposed to just the exception. Okay. Now, Phoenix got a lot of big news recently with Bill Gates buying a little CD, and you mentioned Blythe, but he's 
bought the land halfway to Blythe. So <laughs> yes. we still have to go that direction. Yeah. <laughs> well, we can go in that direction. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, don't. Yeah, it's that's a. Let's, th let's think about that. We we don't have to go that direction. That's one of the things when you begin to speak in terms of uh, density. When you begin to compare cities like Paris with Scottsdale, you begin to look at what the human experience is in a city like that compared to what the human experience is like here for us. Um, just think of what Phil just said. Seventy percent of our energy consumption is is spent being in a building or moving between buildings. That means 30% is spent doing things we really want to do, right. you know, which is a really, really low number. When you begin to take a look at economic development and the expansion of GDP, you have to begin to take a look historically at the development of societies, how those societies decide um, at every moment in their development and in their history to utilize the energy that's available to them. So energy consumption and how it's used on a day-to-day -day basis becomes both a, a very telling story in terms of how we choose to spend our money and where we end up spending our time, but also where we're going to grow. Right now we're spending our money moving in between buildings and being in them. You know, with the World Business Council Day, we had a discussion where it was about 90% of our time in our during our lifetime is spent indoors somewhere. Well, it means probably three or four or five percent of it is spent moving in between the indoor places we are. So these are these are critical questions. And to Phil's point, what the experience is like, um, the the picture in my came in my mind was being in Rome and sitting forty, fifty feet from the Parthenon at a small Italian cafe, drinking a cup of coffee, and the Parthenon was still there. I think the, I'm sure the coffee, the cafe is still there, but it's a much different experience. There wasn't a sidewalk. There wasn't a four-lane road in between us and the Parthenon. There, you know, it was just, it was more of a human-inducive environment within which you were connected with the outside on a much easier, at a much easier level. So, yeah, these, I, I mean... No, and I was just going to say, we talk all the time about the, 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 both the impact physically and emotionally on individuals, um, on the type of building, and Phil knows more about this than I do, that, that, that someone's in. But, you know, go out and, you know, take a look at a picture of Apple's new building. You know, when you, when you ask Johnny Ives, Phil and I have talked about this, when you ask him, well, wh why, did you, why did you do what you did? And he said, well, we're not creating a building to get something out of the building. We're creating the building to give something to the people who utilize it. And that's a different both economic and philosophical position to start from, which means that when you ask one question as opposed to another, you have a completely different set of both calculations and econom economic um, underpinnings and presuppositions. Yeah, if I just return to the... Uh, Bill Gates initiative uh, that you asked about um, uh, I think it's it represents both an opportunity um, uh, and a big question the the opportunity is um, rather than treat it as um, kind of a whiz bang experiment that hopefully does well my my hope is that that project um, embraces uh, a wide spectrum of uh, input from a variety of different disciplines mm. uh, concerned about 
human condition because you know if the human condition is you know in poverty it's pretty hard to grow an economy from that so if we if, if that development is done and it is done in a way that is um like Mazdar in in Saudi uh is it Saudi yeah or United Arab Emirates United Arab Emirates yeah um if if that's done uh with technology and the people side of the equation, it could be really successful. Mm-hmm. My only concern is if it's designed only to be an exemplar of what you can do with technology, I'm not sure whether or not uh, it's going to have the resonance that, that people look for. In, in many ways, you, you, if you look at the amount of work that went into for years making Roosevelt Row what it is today, so I mean, it's kind of a cool place now, but for a long time... The people who were living there were battling the city, mm-hmm. uh, who were trying to get them to stop doing those funky things, like having a cafe in a, uh, a bungalow. Right. Uh, I mean, I remember sitting outside uh, as a young man who decided that he was no longer going to be uh, designing weapons uh, for the Defense Department. He was going to come back to Phoenix, a PhD physicist, and he was talking about to me about why he wanted to do this and why he wanted to live with his friends. Um, and he stopped me halfway through. He said, excuse me, I've got a math tutorial to do. And this little kid on a tricycle was running around, and he was giving math tutorials to him. The key thing I want to make about this, though, is that there were many places that are undesigned. They're, they just happen. They're, they're there because people want them to happen. And my big concern about the initiatives such as Bill Gates' initiative is, is there room for the things that are not designed? Are there things that... Uh, is there room for people just to make stuff? Because some of the best places in the world have never been designed explicitly by anybody. They just sort of happen because it works. So that's one of my concerns there. Well, and I, could, I guess there's the two arguments too, right? There's the side of Las Vegas was designed, right? Yeah, it was. To, to bring something out into the middle of the desert, to pop it up. It was, um, yeah. I mean, really, the mob just needed a, a new burial place, but then it evolved from there. <laughs> But actually, I grew up there, and it was a watering hole in between two railroad stops. And, and then they moved a couple of prostitutes in. And some okay, liquor. before we get too far into this into subject, the- <laughs> we're going to take a quick break. I figured that would redirect us. And uh, we'll be right back with some conscious effort right now. <laughs> Looking for your next event photographer? Everardo Kimi Photography is here to help. Everardo is the official photographer of the Waste Management Phoenix Open, an event that hosts over one million people, so you can trust him with your event. You deserve a photographer that is professional, experienced, and skilled. You deserve Everardo Kimi Photography. Contact Everardo at everardokimi.com or 480-382-7226 to make your next event picture perfect. 
Entrepreneur Simplified is a business coaching and consulting firm that provides educational programs to entrepreneurs and small business owners. We have world-class trainers that lead or retreats and coach our participants in sales, marketing, product development, leadership, and processes and systems. Our programs, especially our MBO, Masters in Business Ownership, create breakthroughs that allow our clients to truly experience a shift in how they operate their business and reach their full potential. This is about real solutions for real business. Ever get lost in conversation or tuned out during a boring presentation or meeting? Who hasn't? Frame the Message, Inc. is here to rid the world of tired and disengaged audiences and bring joy back into learning. In today's world, visuals are the hook that draws in learners, so why not use them to amplify your message? Engage and empower your audience to take action through the inspiring art of visuals. Frame the Message, Inc. provides live graphic recording services to help you ink your think. To find out how you can spruce up your next presentation, visit FrameTheMessageInc.com. That's FrameTheMessageInc.com. Are you ready for swimsuit season? Let's face it. We all have those pesky areas that are stubborn to diet and exercise. We have just the solution for you. Introducing the FDA-approved Ultra Shape Power for powerful fat burning. The Ultra Shape Power is body contouring at its best at 32% fat reduction. The strongest and most effective body contouring device on the market. Painless. No downtime. And you can see the results in as little as two weeks. Call LifeScape Premier to schedule your free consultation with Noelle, their very own certified laser specialist and national trainer. Call 480-860-5500 or visit www.lifescapepremier.com to learn more. Welcome back to Marketing Money Mindset. The place where clever marketing, creating money, and the conscious mindset intersect. With your hosts, Elisa Sparks Lane and Everardo Kimi. All right, welcome back. We definitely got a little bit off the uh, track there for a minute. But um, we actually talked a little bit during the break, Phil and I, and um, you had a great idea about how to tax insurance and bankers that I'd love for you to say on air because I think it was a fantastic way of giving the opportunity to stay alert and be conscious of what we're doing ahead. Yeah, it's, um, the, the idea isn't so much, well, let's tax them, uh, <laughs> as, as much as uh, looking at the measurable consequences of lending practices which um, you know, create environments that, in, that really it, it create problems for the, you know, people who are living in them all the time. As I said, we, we have a huge uh, chronic disease problem, not only in terms of... Um, Things like diabetes and o- obesity as a result of um, environments not encouraging uh, active lifestyles and active ways of living. Um, but we also have environments um, in, in some areas where um, the environments don't even encourage decent sleep. And, uh, and it's not that somebody's sitting there, you know, with a shining light in the eye and keeping people awake. But, um, you know, if you suffer from... Um, disturbed sleep patterns, um, which is, you know, high temperatures in rooms or in kids in families who, who, who really, you know, can't afford to keep the uh, house cooled down to 72 at night. 
Mm. Um, just after two days, fit and healthy adults will experience a 40% degree, a 40 increase in waking appetite. And the craving is for carbohydrates and sugars. Well, if you have a household that they're spending all their money on a utility bill, the only food they tend to have in the house tends to be carbs and sugars. So we end up with poor environments being a deadly embrace for an epidemic we're already trying to fight. Mm-hmm. So the notion of, of, of taxing or, or providing some sort of incentive for the um, uh, sort of financial end of the picture is given that um, short-term thinking and expediency is tending to create the environments that have a negative impact on us um, and we can tally up the amount we're spending on chronic diseases, uh, you know, in the trillions of dollars every year. Um, Maybe there is uh, a way for the financial community to collaborate much more closely with those who do have expertise in, in the design, engineering, and measurement of built environments so that the lending practices can be more appropriately calibrated toward better social and economic and health outcomes than they are at the moment. So the moment is, can we get the building or the project done? Can it come in on time? Can we um, achieve our return on investment? Can we minimize the risk that we need to minimize in terms of our lending practices? But by doing so, we know that it's actually creating all kinds of other problems. And so, it, you know, it, 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 there is a consequence to those short-term focal fo- foci in, in, the lending, uh, in, the, in the lending end of the spectrum. So I'm not sure what the tax would be, but from a, from a na- national perspective, um, we have uh, folks making, you know, making margins, whatever they are, in, on the real estate transaction side of things from the banking and real estate and development perspective. But on the other end, uh, we're... Uh, you know, turning ourselves inside out, uh, worrying about how the heck we're going to be paying uh, for the healthcare costs in this country, mm-hmm. when we know a huge portion of that comes from the built environments that are being developed and, and put in play, uh, there seems to me to be a bit of a gap in um, responsibility, shall we say, uh, between the consequences of short-term and expediency-based uh, lending practices and. Uh, the healthcare consequences. The other thing I would say, though, is, is perhaps um, the uh, calibration of um, uh, actuarial risk factors within the banking sector and insurance sector could be potentially revisited uh, to include somehow uh, algorithms and approaches that account for those longer-term potential impacts so that... Um, you know, it's possible perhaps for the banking industry to take a longer view uh, because the banking industry already knows that uh, the best investments <coughs> tend to be uh, in those companies and those endeavors that have very, very strong, sustainable, resilient profiles over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was uh, Jim Champy of, uh, at Harvard some years ago um, uh, wrote a book called Core Values and uh, uh, he looked at, I think, about 200 companies going back to the 1920s. Uh, and what he found was that the companies that produced the greatest returns over the longest period of time were companies whose core values had something to do with human well-being as opposed to shorter-term shareholder returns. Not money. Money. Yeah. 
So money's great. I mean, it, to me, it's, it's like the important synthetic oil you put in an engine. Um, so what's the purpose behind it? The purpose behind it is the key thing. And I think mm -hmm. the purpose is how do we create um, a greater level of fulfillment in people's lives? And lastly, on this point, um, right now we've got, I think, uh, nationally about a $20 trillion economy, roughly. And that's with maybe 10% of those people working actually enjoying what they're doing. What if 90% of the workforce actually enjoyed what they're doing so that the work they were doing was who they were, not a job to do in between weekends? What size of an economy would that, ha would that be? I, I don't know the answer to it, but somehow if we can move the needle from where we are right now to a much greater level of fulfillment, and built environments are very important aspects of this, I, I think we have the capacity to expand the economy enormously without engaging in vast amounts of potentially unproductive competition with other nations. So with you two starting together with Amplify Phoenix, then what's the purpose of that, and then how will that evolve? Because um, um, there's also Amplify Phoenix Lab, correct? Yeah, um, there's, there's, there are two sort of phases. Right now, we're in the beginning pieces of, uh, the beginning phases of, of, of assembling, if you like, a, um, a, a, a coalition of uh, interested and committed organizations from you know, finance, from construction sector from uh, there are plenty of people in the you know building design and engineering sector who would be interested in this um, as well as other organizations but also uh, communities we have a multicultural uh, community here in in this region as do many other cities so it's it's important that that gets involved involved the 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 lab itself would is conceived of as a one to two day event um, and and it we don't have a deadline for this. It needs to be configured right. But it's to bring that sort of coalition together to articulate the aspirations, financial, environmental, human aspirations for this massive region, um, maybe over the next 10 to 20 years, and to set the tone for um, a small organization um, which would be a part of the World Business Council on Sustainable Development, but a public-private partnership of some kind, which would help to accelerate and amplify uh, the many efforts already taking place here, as well as do some new ones. And uh, one of the uh, key aspects of making things real is, I mean, we can talk all day about you know, macroeconomic issues, but in the end, it's going to come down to individual developments, uh, whether it's um, repurposing land near airports or whether it's um, infill neighborhoods or whether it's someone wanting to take a relook at what mixed use really means, which actually can mean more than just housing and retail. It can mean a whole bunch of different things these days. If we can identify those kinds of um, uh, developments and essentially put almost like a ring fence around them and say to the municipalities as well as everyone else, can we uh, do things uh, on these sites which are more innovative, uh, are less constrained by 30-year-old planning rules that require setbacks and so many parking spaces per bedroom, for example, mm -hmm. and instead do some things that seem to make more sense. 
Uh, I don't know if we're going to be successful at that, but that's, I think, what's going to be needed. And if we can have enough of a coalition of uh, community members, uh, business members, uh, as well as municipal organizations uh, helping to do that. This gives this region the ability to invent our way into the future. Um, and I think that's going to be very important. It's, it's fine having uh, Bill Gates do something out west, um, but there is nothing quite like getting communities to feel that the future they're making is theirs. It's not somebody else coming in and saying, here you are, we have a wonderful development, now you can go and live there. Um, it's very important that people shape themselves. We're all of us, our designers, I mean, you've, we've all run up to traffic lights and we all make guesswork as to whether or not we'll make the yellow or do we stop. That's a design process. And every single human being does that and there's no reason why every single human being shouldn't be involved in, in these kinds of exemplar developments. So it becomes much more embedded in, in what this community is as opposed to just a set of developments. So how does a community get involved to make those decisions or try to have that action on there versus having a developer building a, a city out west and just saying, here you go, here's your grocery yeah. store, your little town square? That would be part of what we do. Yeah, the, right. The, the biggest issue is going to be with sort of this, the assumptions you begin with about what human beings are like. So in modern economics, the human being is conceived as a, sort of a human consumption machine, an economic machine. And what we're proposing, both philosophically and economically, is that the human being is conceived as, uh, as a builder of community and a builder of self. And so what we're looking for is we're looking for projects and trying to create projects where individuals can see themselves being more fulfilled as human beings, becoming more of themselves, being more, making more conscious decisions, but doing it in such a way that they're not taking that opportunity from somebody else. So this is... You know, one of the things that goes through my mind when I read about the Bill Gates city is I say, okay, well, how much, how much fuel are we going to consume commuting? How much energy are we going to consume? What's the real difference? Bill, if you're out there listening to us at some point, please give us a call. Yeah, you, can get, please, yeah. you can get in touch with me through Elisa or, or Everardo, and uh, either, either uh, Phil or both of us will be happy to sit down with you. Um, but, but these are critical issues because there was a, there was a shift in the – in, in the discussion at some point historically where, where both economically and philosophically we stopped talking about the human being as being an organic entity inside, living inside of an environment. We began to talk about the human being as though it was sort of a schizo schizoid, schizophrenic split experience, split experience between the body and the mind, as though you could think apart from any kind of an influence on the body. Well, we, you know, we, know, that's not, we know that's not true. Um, and this is the, the, the core difference in terms of what we talk about in terms of amplification of human experience goes to the very root of then what do these built environments and habitats actually look like and how can they help individual humans um, have better lives? And I'm not sure if I'm answering your question of how humans, you know, people get involved. We're in the process of trying to help people get involved. So we're happy to talk to anybody at this point. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Ken's right. I think uh, we've, we've achieved a 
sort of fantastic society in many ways and it's got problematic in other areas. But on, on the one hand, we're already referring to ourselves as, as people, not as people, but as either consumers on one end of the spectrum or voters on the other. But in between, there's us. And that in-between bit is being left out a lot. Mm -hmm. We see, we hear that from millennials, we hear it from other age groups, and we hear it from you know, weird people at the other end of the spectrum, like Ken and me, saying the same thing. Like, oh, wait a minute, we're more than, we're more than just a consumption machine, uh, more than just a vote and a checkbox at a, at a polling booth as well. There's more to us than that. Um, I think to make this real, we also need to really capitalize on the tremendous amount of innovation that's taken place uh, in the United States uh, in uh, augmented reality, virtual reality. Uh, we, we have a, a, a connected population now. Like, when most people hear about a development, it's when it's going to impact their neighborhood. And they may show up at city council and go, wait a minute, mm -hmm. I'm not sure we want this. Well, the reason usually there's a reaction to it is that most of the design of it and most of the thinking behind it has been done behind closed doors and then suddenly presented. Right? Nobody reacts particularly well to that. But today, we actually have the ability to connect millions of people to a virtual reality that can be created by people for them. They can, you could put up your iPad and look out of this window at a development 10 miles over there, and you could say, oh, yeah, I, through virtual reality, I can actually see, or augmented reality, I can actually see what this might be like. That could be pretty cool. And I can actually now go over and drive by it and actually take my ver uh, augmented reality window up, and I can look at this. And it's just not too bad. There's some shops there. There's a little factory there that's interesting. There's a bus stop there as well. There's a cafe. We don't have that, and yet we have all the technological underpinnings to make that happen. So one of the things that um, I was looking at uh, in terms of you know, shaping how we would do this Amplify uh, lab and also this platform going on is to leverage a great deal more from the virtual reality gaming environment hmm. than is the case. We, we hear a lot about computer-aided design, building information modeling, and all of the various simulation software, which is all great stuff. We use it all the time in, in uh, the, the construction industry. But what about leveraging the tremendous firepower and innovation and computing power in, in, in the gaming industry to bring some of that uh, immediacy to the problem, so that a, a development to do something like, I don't know, a light rail extension or uh, a new multifaceted infill development that kind of uh, spills through several different neighborhoods like an amoeba, how to make that much more apparent and readily available rather than waiting for five years before the answer is presented to us. If we can get people to participate in creating that answer, we might end up with a much bigger level of buy-in to the future of this place, and also um, potentially a population that feels much more rooted and committed to living, working, and carrying out their lives and having families and growing careers here. Well, and making an impact. Um, you both said you met at a coffee shop, which is funny because that's yeah. where most business is being done these days. But what was it about both of you that actually propelled you into this? Because this isn't a small task. This is actually pretty big. Was there anything in your life that you're like, there has to be a change? And this is more on the yeah. personal level, too. Yeah. Um, I spent most of my career in the... I, I started off as an architect uh, in England. I'm still a member of the Royal Institute of British Architects. I'm still a chartered architect in the UK. Um, but um, I came to the United States and went into the management consulting field. I had a public health degree. Um, in my work, 
where I was doing a lot of work in large-scale data analysis of health insurance claims with Blue Shield of California. I was a chief analytics officer of a subsidiary of theirs. Um, I started seeing patterns of uh, obesity, um, orthopedic problems, depression, occurring in some of the swankiest areas of suburban areas. And I remember seeing that. I knew these areas had, you know, there was nowhere to, they were monozoned, so it's housing is housing, and then it's separated by miles from where you can go shopping and doing anything. I knew that it was impossible, in fact, even illegal, to have a corner store in those housing developments. And I remember saying to my, my wife, you know, I've got to find a way um, of somehow reconnecting uh, my kind of public health and business end of things to my original architecture degree, which had a lot to do with the creation of human places. Um, and that, that's really where, where my sort of passion came together. Uh, it was sort of enhanced somewhat when I was at the Frank Lloyd Wright Foundation, but following on from that as a sustainability scientist with ASU, um, I, I, I was doing more and more work, not just my day job, but I, I was doing more and more work and more passionate about finding a way to connect these dots up. Mm. That was me. And you, Ken? I know oh. there's some uh, significant stories being, I don't know if you're going to share those, but there was definitely a lot of health and interesting how you've taken health into a new realm this year as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, um, yeah, it, for me it really started, and it is connected with me making decisions about completely trying to transform my physical and emotional and spiritual lives during 2017, 2000, actually for the next 10 years. Um, but it really started in, 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 at the PhD, in my PhD work, trying to figure out a way to overcome um, the, the, the barrier between talking about an individual existing inside of a system. And Phil has some systems experience. My background is in communication theory with Bateson and metaphysics with Whitehead and um, some cultural anthropology and as well as economics and portfolio theory and some other stuff from, for uh, a part of a life I have right now. And um, the, the question becomes, how, how, do you, how do you do that? You know, and so it really led to me doing quite a bit of research in the area of how human beings make financial decisions, um, and and what is what is the impact that that have? How, what kind of an impact does that have on our daily life? But but more importantly, um, is coming to the realization that each of the decisions that we make becomes a building block for our current life and the future lives of others, which is a little bit different than the way we usually operate, which is it, it doesn't really matter if I jump in my car and drive 10 miles to get a loaf of bread or it doesn't matter if I do this or I do that because it's seen, it is seen as separate from who I am and how I'm impacting the world. And, and I think the, one of the biggest things I've learned is that um, everything that we do is important and everything that we do has an impact. And Einstein was right. It's the butterfly in the rainforest that starts the hurricane. We just don't happen to see the butterfly. So part of our work together is to help flush out the butterflies more so people can see that. And um, I happen to have the opportunity to um, use all of that to transform my personal life as well. By that definition, though, aren't we the butterflies? 
Like it starts with us, right? I mean, yes, it does. If every consumer buys one less, you know, disposable good or hard, you know, something that's harmful in that, I mean, mm-hmm. those numbers add up. So when the when they the do. corporations and everyone tout up to, hey, we just had record sales and we just had you know 15 million people consume our product. Yeah. Well, that's us. Yeah. yeah that I, is. Right. I, I would I would that's sort of a focus on the individual aspect of it that we each individually have responsibility. What we're working towards and driving towards is developing economic economic and modeling for these kinds of activities where we can actually look at the economic impact of doing that and say with certainty that it's a positive or a negative. Because it's what you're describing is going to be a positive for some people and a negative for others. And how do you say that and how do you begin to articulate that in a way that you can move forward with that both economic and personal confidence? I and, think, and really say something sustainable and not just as my mom used to do, which is save aluminum cans, which is fine, but that's what she used to do. You know? Well, like you have Amazon that made their big initiative about the reducing the hassle-free packaging. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I, I think there's a really big role in the application of uh, circular e- economy principles, you know, where you know, somebody else, someone's waste is somebody else's raw material. And that can happen within a company as well as across companies as well. Right. And when it comes to built environments, it's to what extent you know, is a building ultimately dismantleable or, uh, or ability to expand or change and without you know, tearing the whole thing down and, and, and starting from scratch again, which we tend to do today. Um, but there's a, a there's a real ability to to, to do that. Um, there's a lot of work in, in that whole circular economy area, which is very very important. Because if we have an economy that is still based on the ability for people to buy things and consume things, then what we consume uh, needs to be dealt with in some way so that it can actually reappear as another product that somebody else is buying later on. Because at the moment we're kind of throwing it away. And uh, away is getting pretty close to us in terms right. of, you know, the, the, the waste dumps, the ocean, and yeah. business, whatever. But filling the ocean with plastics. By 2050, we'll have more plastic than fish in the ocean. Yeah, that's not good. So, so for Lisa, what I'll do is I'll recycle her champagne bottle, and we'll just keep refilling that one bottle. That's a very good idea. Yeah. That's a very good idea. <laughs> I, think I, think. We I like how it came full circle. I think we should start keep, right now. Where's that bottle? Yeah. Yeah. Keep planting the grapes. So you just crop rotation. See? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> what a great subject to think about while we're heading into the holidays, too, where I think um, consumption is, is definitely something that we overdo a little bit. So um, I challenge everyone this week to think about how to make a difference, and maybe even today, like make something happen. I think it all starts with a dream. And the right. imagination and the subject definitely from today's show is, is definitely going to give some ideas out. So I, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, best way to reach out, we'll find out, and we'll share that on our group page. And um, happy holidays, everyone. We'll see you guys next week. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Pleasure awesome. being here. Thank you. Take care. Bye.